And we are back, the Strong Podcast. I'm your host, Phil DeRue. Today, I do not have the cameras with me, but we are doing a Zoom call. I have two very special guests with me today, Matt Domney and also Kyle Dobbs. These guys dropped a huge amount of value and information on the podcast. It was arguably one of my most favorite interviews that I've done. Again, I had a great conversation with these individuals talking about not only coaching, but also the business side of coaching and also the communication and how you need to utilize the psychology of getting over and helping other athletes achieve what they need to by communicating appropriately for that individual based on their individual needs, but also on their psychological needs, right? Based on their personality traits. We also talk about systems and overriding that with their own principles, making sure that you have those in line, and then also making sure that you can categorize or subjectify what you're doing with the athlete to make it work for them, not just put out a blanket approach. Okay, so I know you guys are going to love it. Very happy with this episode. But before we do that, I need to make sure we shout out the sponsors, Athletic CBD. Go to athleticcbd.com. Use my discount code DERU at your checkout. You get 20% off there. Also, if you're looking to train some of my methods or some of my programs, I have them all available at my website, derustron.com. You can check out all the programs there and my mentorship course. If you are a coach trying to learn some of the methods, the protocols, all of the systems that I use for my athletes and myself, you can go to derustron.com. Check it out right then and there. Also, I do have right now an app that we just opened up. It's called Fight Dominance. It's for off-camp programming. So if you're looking to do that, if you're looking to train off-camp, if you're not in camp or you're just a general pop client or someone who wants to train like a fighter, you can go ahead and check that out too. Again, we get monthly and weekly updates. And then also I do Q&As on there as well. So check it out all on my website, deroostrong.com. Now let's get into the interview. So, uh, Phil, thank you for having us on. Uh, my name is Matt Domney. I am the head powerlifting coach at Compound Performance, and that actually what, just the head coach at uh, Compound Performance with Kyle Dobbs. Um, I work it, with Kyle in all remote training and remote and individual mentorship capacity as well. So what we basically try to do is we try to do whatever we can to elevate the standard of other coaches and trainers in the industry and give them a better chance to provi provide better client, uh, programming for their clientele and teach them how to better serve their individual market and potentially break into new markets if they don't have um, the confidence to do so already. Nice, nice. Got it. How'd you get started in the industry? I know, I know you did some martial arts, obviously, and then transitioned into strength sports, right? Right. So for, for me, I got, I got started in the industry um, when I was right out, of, right out of college in 20, uh, at like 23 years old because I tore my ACL, MCL, LCL, PCL, medial and lateral wow. meniscus. Um, in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. Yeah. Whole thing was gone. Um, whole thing was gone. Yeah. It was in a Brazilian Jiu Jitsu uh, class. It wasn't even in a, in, a, in a tournament. It was, it was just in a class and like some dude, we weren't doing heel hooks and some dude just went for a heel hook and just shredded wow. my shit up. 
Um, and just cranked it on way too fast and just got rid of it. Sorry, I don't know if I can swear on your podcast, but I'm going to do it anyway. Fuck yeah, you um, can. Let's go. All right, sounds good. It's Florida. I mean, I figured there's no rules anyway. Um, right. But uh, so so that that happened. I went to physical therapy afterwards with that. And my, my physical therapist was awesome. She was like fantastic at rehab. And she was getting me to do like some sports performance stuff. So I was like cleaning. I box squatted 315 for like sets of 10, like a month after my knee was torn, I was doing wow. sprints. I was doing box jumps. I was doing like all sorts of like really fun athletic stuff. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, this would be a fun career. Cause you get to take athletes and rehab them back to where they are and where they can, where they can do stuff again. And you can get them to actually do some performance stuff and have fun with it. Um, I told her that this was my intention and this was my plan. And she and I like become kind of friendly at the point. She pulled me over to the side and like grabbed me and goes, don't do it. You're going to hate your life. Because all I deal with are like 70-year-old women who don't listen to whatever I tell them to do, never do their homework, and they complain that they're always in pain. She's like, you are the one fun person that I've had in the seven years that I've been in physical therapy. I was like, great, I'm not going to do that. So looked into personal training, got into PT, um, worked at a couple box gyms, and then got bored with my and bored and stale with my own personal development and actually hired Kyle to mentor me in 2019. Um, at the time I was prepping for a powerlifting meet and I told Kyle, I was like, well, after my meet, I'd like to like get started with this after my powerlifting meet, because I just want to focus on that first and get that done. And then when that's done, I want to just like dive headfirst into this. And he basically gave me the default answer of like, cool, man, see you on the internet. Never going to talk to you again. Um, <laughs> and then the day after my meet, I immediately contacted him was like, ready to go. Can we get started this week or next week? Um, and then we got started from there. So he, he started mentoring me. He meant, I worked with him for three months in that capacity. And then I decided I really liked the service that Kyle provided, but I didn't want to pay him anymore because I don't like paying people. Um, so I offered to train him and coach him. So we did a little barter for a little bit and we continued to work together after that. And then, uh, he asked to hire me for the group mentorship. So I guess that's, I don't know what he saw in me, but you know, (laughs) all right. So, so Kyle, so how did, how did you, find Kyle though was it online or was it I was looking for a bunch of uh, for a mentor at the time because like I said I was super stale in my, my own personal development um yeah. and I'd look for I found another mentor who I asked I was like okay cool like what would the what would your prices and everything be and this person looked at me dead in the face and said oh it's five hundred dollars an hour and I was like all right I'm not working with you uh, we're gonna we're gonna find somebody different um because yeah. that's basically that's the fitness professional polite way of telling you to go fuck yourself um yeah, and then, uh, then after that, I found another course that was not really tailored to what I was looking for. And it was like $3,500 up front. Um, and then I found Kyle who ended up having a much better curriculum at a price that was a much more understandable price. It was, it was a much easier price for me to manage at the time. Um, and I was like, yeah, let's just go with this one because it sounds like the stuff that I need to actually do. It's not playing to my strengths. It was playing to my weaknesses, which was good. Gotcha, gotcha. All right, Kyle, man, the floor is yours, man. He already, he already built you up. So let's yeah. see. Yes. I make him sound a lot more impressive than he actually is. He does. <laughs> Matt, Matt's my hype man through and through, and I, I always appreciate that. And that's that's part of why I pay him. And, you know, so I'm Kyle Dobbs. I've been in the industry of 15 years uh, total. And sweet. Keep talking. <laughs> informed. <laughs> there he is. Informed compound performance uh, just over three years ago. And my, my history is, you know, I was uh, a two sport athlete in college that dealt with a ton of injuries. Um, I've had several knee surgeries, a hip surgery and a shoulder surgery throughout the end of high school into college and ended up being that frustrated 
athlete who never got to realize any kind of potential because I spent too much time in the training room and not enough time on the court. And I was also a pre-med major in college. Just again, I've got family in the medical industry. I've always been interested in biology, physiology, biomechanics, all that stuff. And realized really about by the end of my freshman year that I didn't want to go to med school, but I did like the curriculum that I was taking. So I was trying to think of other avenues where I could be a little more proactive in working with people um, and, and kind of go more into, you know, the, the preparation side of things. And after school, um, I was looking at, you know, university jobs and potentially going in and interning with sports teams at universities. But my girlfriend at the time, now wife, was moving to New York to work in the fashion industry. And I said, fuck it. I need to get out of Missouri at that point in my life anyway. And uh, went and ended up at a kind of big box gym in New York as a personal trainer. You know, I graduated with my CSCS and CPT and just kind of went from there. And had a lot of success really early on, um, got into management and multi-level management, and then into uh, a regional management position with that club over or that organization over the course of a few years and was looking over uh, anywhere between 13 to 20 gyms between New York and Miami on the East Coast. And then went into working at a really high level personal training facility out of New York called peak performance. Um, it's where I got to work with guys like Pat Davidson and the resilient physical therapy team. And then just probably the best training staff uh, that I've ever seen as far as just a group of trainers and realized that I, I didn't know shit. Like, you know, I sat in, you know, in one continuing education meeting there and I was all of these people's boss at that point and realized that I was probably the most underdeveloped trainer in there. And that was super scary and super exciting at the same time and kind of led me down a rabbit hole of new curriculum. You know, I really enjoyed being kind of a small fish in that pond again and just growing, you know, so went through that, that project imploded due to investor issues and, and financial issues a few, you know, about a year later. And I went on to become the, the national director and education director for another company based out of New York overseeing, anywhere between seven to 12 markets in the U S and 50 to 70 facilities and a couple thousand trainers. And after about two years of doing that, I, I'm a father and a husband. And I was at that point, kind of a terrible father and husband, uh, based on my standards and decided that I'd had enough of that. We moved back to the Midwest and kind of took, you know, six months to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And, Thought about opening a facility here in St. Louis, where I am now, and um, it just didn't work out. Real estate was terrible, and I couldn't get a good deal. So I started a completely remote business working with coaches, you know, both from a training perspective and then also just from a professional development perspective, uh, looking at my years of management and, and education development uh, historically. And that started off super slow and I was super frustrated and it eventually, you know, kept chipping away and, and kind of building it up. And, you know, about a year in, um, started working with Matt and, and the story with Matt's funny because at that point, you know, I, I'd run, God, probably a hundred consultations to get 10 clients. Right. And they all kind of ended like that. We had a really great phone call and they're like, cool, I'll think about it. Right. Just like anybody else's gym experience when you do a consultation, like, awesome. I'll, uh, see you around, I guess, you know, so 
never expected to see him again. Um, and then he called me up and, you know, I was really excited to work with him. You know, we, we had a good time. He actually did. That is a lie. He actually didn't do anything I asked him to do in the mentorship. But oh, I made 10 weeks of excuses. And then he called me a procrastinating asshole on week 10. And I was like, oh, man, I got so angry, but it was so accurate. I, I basically called him a bitch and was like, you know, you're, if you want to advance your career, if you want to get out of the situation you're in, you, you kind of have to step up and actually start making moves yourself and not wait for things to happen for you. And, and at that point, you know, he called me on it back and said, hey, you know, I know you work with coaches typically. I know you don't like to train yourself because we talked about all this stuff. He's like, how about you let me train you? And we'd had enough conversations at that point that I had a high level of respect for his training ability. He was a shitty business person, but I had a high level of respect for his ability to train people. And I said, yeah, let's, let's give it a shot. You know, and I started working with him and, you know, we kind of, like he said, bartered for a little bit. And at that point, my development, the development part of my business is really taking off. And I was working with 25 to 30 clients, which for me means 25 to 30 hours on zoom a week. And that ended up being a lot. So I wanted to offload a portion of my training, my remote coaching and, and, you know, worked out a deal with him where he would kind of take over the the coaching portion of the business. And I'd, I'd retain the development side. And throughout the last year, you know, we, we now kind of both work on both ends of it. You know, when he's working with um, a client, you know, he'll consult with me about some biomechanical stuff, you know, every now and then we'll work on that aspect of things. I work with a few of our clients. We share a few clients and then he helps me a lot. And has become a huge part of the, the group mentorship program that we've started, which we've worked with what Matt about 350 trainers over the last year. Oh yeah. Over the last year, probably closer to 400 at this point. Yeah. With, so yeah. A, a pretty big amount there. And, and now we just launched the, the powerlifting of all program, which he's, heading up and I'm assisting on and we've got a really good initial group in there. And it's, it's just looking at new ways to grow the business and be able to get in front of more people and help more people. And um, super excited about what we have going on now and just looking more to, into, you know, God willing things open up a little bit more being able to travel and, and speak at gyms and have presentations and host seminars and also get into more just facility consulting and continuing education for like groups um, so we've kind of got our feet in a lot of different things. That's my personal story. Um, yeah. I mean, that's about it for me. That's so you know how, yeah. You know how that is as a business owner too. Like everybody, everybody comes to you and they're like, you have your hands in a lot of different pots. And it's like, well, yeah. Cause like if one of those pots fails, I need to have 10 more running because I need to pay my bills, dude. Yeah. It's like, I, no one's writing me. Focus on one. Like, yeah. yeah. I remember, um, I remember talking to one of my coaches, Dean Thomas. Uh, I was like 20 years old, 21 years old. I just started fighting. And he goes, you know, he's like, what are you doing now? And I was, I was just doing personal training at the time. And uh, he was like, you know, you have to try to find multiple streams of income. And I was like, what do you mean by that? He's like, you can't put all your eggs in one basket. Even if this doesn't work out, you need to have. And again, he's not saying, and I'm not saying, don't focus on the task, but still make sure that you have those things in order. You know what I mean? So I definitely get what you guys are saying. Now, that's one of the, right. I was going to say, that's one of the things that we deal with most in terms of the, the coaches that we take is that every coach that we deal with is used to trading um, hours for dollars. 
Yeah. Right. And that's the only, like we, we become so conditioned at a certain point that if I'm not working, I'm not being paid that learning how to scale a business and create different revenue streams is a significant challenge for everybody. And it's just one of those things that you can see talking to these coaches that it just doesn't really compute and they just kind of shut down about it. It's like, wait, you mean I can run this and make more money and do less work? How, how does that work for me? Yeah. Yeah. That that's a big part of, really any of the programs that I work on with people is, you know, it's a lot of coaches end up kind of coming to me for education, just based off of, you know, the stuff that we post on social media and, and coaches have a bias where, you know, again, it's, it's a, it's a demographic bias as well. Like coaches who are following me are probably invested in certain systems and, and kind of have a general career path that are going to be similar to, you know, my own, you know, so they're coming to me looking for, education and like seminars and recommended certifications and things that they should take. And it's like, man, you already have the the alphabet soup after your name. Like education is not your limiter, right? Like this is not the thing that's holding you back. You know? So a lot of what we look at is most of the people that come to us are in a transition phase where they're, they're kind of sealing out where they are currently. And they're looking to grow out of that room. And that, that might be vertical growth through an organization that might be horizontal growth through, like you said, diversifying your revenue streams and opening up other opportunities from that perspective. Um, even just like we focus a lot on soft skills like we focus on communication. Like I'm back in school now, like in grad school for behavioral psychology, because I am so interested in that side of things. And, and, and that's another thing that we look at is how coaches like set the experience for their actual athletes or clients, you know, depending on what environment they work and where they can put people in a position to succeed and kind of meet them where they're at, you know, not only from a, a physical or physiological level, but also from a psychological and cognitive level relating to their goals and fitness. And, and we, we really focus heavy on that. And people kind of I think come into the program with this expectation that we're just going to talk about, you know, uh, <laughs> vector angles and, and muscle fiber orientations <laughs> and biomechanics. And, and we end up talking about a lot of other things that maybe they hadn't really considered being part of what they do on an everyday basis. I usually yeah. look at like the most, I guess, successful trainers, the ones mm -hmm. that are making a, a solid living almost you could, call them very wealthy in a sense right mm -hmm. they have the ability to connect with their mm -hmm. athletes with their clients you know you can again like you said have the alphabet suit behind your name but if you can't communicate that's a big issue right yeah i think that's one of the things that has changed probably for the negative more recently in the fitness industry by and by more recently i mean within the last like five to eight years um with the advent of online coaching is now what most people can do, most people, most coaches are looking at putting out the greatest spreadsheet and putting out the best numbers on a spreadsheet they possibly can and not focusing on the in-person relationship. And it's like, I know coaches and trainers from some of my old jobs who have 50, 60, 70 remote clients and zero in-person because they literally cannot understand how to communicate with somebody face-to-face. -face. Yeah. It's like, well, you got a great PDF that you send out once a month, but you don't know how to talk to a human anymore. So are you actually going to rate like retain those clients long-term? Are you building relationships? Are you doing anything? Are you getting to know these people in a way that like matters and will actually influence their behavioral change more so than just sending them the best program possible? Yeah. 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 I mean, do you think, do you think being as like now guys, you guys are working solely, not solely online, but mostly online, mm -hmm. right? 
how do you go about understanding the person? I mean, is there like an assessment or a consultation, obviously, in, a, in the initial phase? And then from there, you get to know them over time. Is that how we do it? Yeah. So it's a combination of things. Like we do, we have an optional, like for anybody that I work with one-on-one, like I actually have them run through a behavioral assessment called the DISC. And and that's mm-hmm. something that I've used in the past with consulting. And, Hold on, and let me write this down. Hold on, Kyle. Let me write this down. I got this. <laughs> Right now, what's it called? The, the disc. disc, the disc, right? And and this gives people kind of the opportunity, or it gives me the opportunity to better just understand their own communication strategies and their own kind of environmental bias, right? So, giving me a letting me understand kind of their level of extroversion. Uh, are they introverted? Are they extroverted? Like how they orient goals? Like are they process oriented or are they goal oriented? Right? Are they experiential or are they are they outcome based? And then how they handle conflict, right? Because some people will initiate conflict for change and some people will shy away from conflict and avoid it at all costs, right? So me knowing those things now allows me to better communicate with those individuals and also kind of steer them in directions that might put them in a better position to succeed. And for a lot of our training clients, we'll have the disc as like an optional a la carte thing because it does cost money. So if they want to pay for it, we'll run them through it as an addition. But we also, within our intake form, we ask very specific questions that give us insight based on their answers into where they would fall kind of in those three categories. And that gives us a better idea, or at least a probably a more intelligent assumption of where they might fall, like within those archetypes. And and from there, we can start navigating and kind of choosing our communication strategies based around that so that we can have the most impact into their drivers and their motivators, right? Because everybody kind of comes in with a goal, but how we communicate the, uh, the application of stress, like the training itself towards that goal will usually dictate on what their preferences and their values are coming into it because we want to keep them motivated and we want to make sure that they understand that every intervention we provide is aimed at that thing that they're really trying to reach for. And we have to be able to communicate that to keep them motivated. We have to make it dopaminergic, right? We like have to keep that drip going. And, and I think that's, that's a big thing that a lot of coaches miss in my experience is they, they speak to their own bias because we all have our own bias, right? Like that's just part of being a human being. And they don't recognize that, you know, a lot of their clients are going to be coming in with very different perceptions of what training is and what goal selection is. Yeah. And that's one of the biggest things too, is the communication strategies between somebody who's more experiential based and somebody who's, uh, or experience based and versus somebody who's more outcome based is hugely different, Mm -hmm. hugely, hugely, hugely different. Because if you have like, for example, I work with a lot of power lifters. If I have somebody who's very experience oriented, this is where, when they're telling me about how they're feeling during a prep or during a peak, I have to be much more understanding and communicative about why they could be feeling this way. Whereas if they're, process and outcome oriented, it can be just more of like, shut up, you're going to be really strong on the day, mm-hmm. right? It's a very, very different communication style. And, and the opposite one will not work for the opposite person, right? So if I tell that experiential person to just shut up, I don't care how strong you are today. I care how strong you are at the meet. That's going to be a very poor experience for that person. And they're going to take that negatively and move to different cl- and move to different coaches, which is, yeah. I think, one of the biggest things that, uh, that Kyle hammers down very, very, very well during the individual mentorship and the group mentorship 
yeah. is working on different communication strategies and treating everybody like they're like making tailoring whatever you're doing to fit that person's expectations of the experience. Right. Where it's like for you, Phil, like if you're training for a fight, it's like you only care about the fight, but yeah. somebody else might care about every single step in leading up to that and not actually care that much about the fight at all. Like they might just well, put much more stock into the training. Well, a lot of it is they may be wanting to more focus on the experience as opposed mm -hmm. to the end goal, because the end goal is, again, maybe a little bit too much for them at that particular time. Where right. They need to focus on the training so that they can get confident enough to go into the fight and ready to go. Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. Absolutely. Yeah. But again, it's the same thing where those communication strategies will not work if it's if you reverse them. Yeah. And when you're in the gin pop realm, like it's the same thing when you're working with somebody who might have like a 50 pound weight loss goal, right? Like yeah. that, that 50 pounds on day one looks like sometimes this insurmountable number for somebody who's, you know, lived in that state for a long time and, and is just starting over as, you know, a very new gym person, right? Or new to physical activity. Whereas if we can take it like on a day-by-day -day basis and we can start breaking down like what we want them to experience from a week standpoint into a day standpoint, you know, a lot of it has to do with creating, you know, intention, right? Be, what we deal with a lot in, in, in both specificity-based athletes and variability-based clients is, you know, we have to build up adherence typically before we ever start seeing physiological or physical adaptation. And when you're working with people, especially like in the general population realm, they have to enjoy what they're doing. Like a lot of athletes will just put their heads down during training and do what they're asked to do because they know what the outcome is and they're self-motivated from that perspective. They might not always enjoy it. Some might really enjoy it. Like you said, they might love the training aspect of things. But regardless, they're going to do it and they're going to do it with a high intention because they understand what their goal is. When we're working with like a gen pop person, they have much less urgency built around their goal. Typically, there's no fight date. There's no game day. Right. So we have to create urgency by setting a timeline for whatever that goal may be. And from there, we can start looking at driving training frequency and lifestyle coherence and all those things. But for us to even get to like from the first session to the second session, we have to start building rapport. We have to start building trust and we have to start building some kind of enjoyment for that client or we'll never see them again. You know, so it kind of adherence leads to coherence, leads to behavior change in a lot of these aspects, but they have to enjoy it from day one. We have to create that form. Yeah. Do you feel that when you, when you're paying attention to how they are um, as an individual, do you, does that skew kind of like your programming too, per se, like as far as exercise selection and variability, um, depending on the person, correct? Yeah, I'll let Matt go into this because he does a really good job with this, actually. It it can, um, but one of the things that I look at when or we, we look at and we espouse every single time in every program that we go through is that if your programming is based off of principles, uh, like, like solid move, uh, training principles, the exercise selection doesn't really matter as much as the application of it, right? So this is one of those things where uh, if we're looking at, it might just change the way that we cue or communicate what's going to be happening with the exercise, right? So it's like, if I'm making somebody do like a large volume of leg extensions, they might, it might just be like, Hey, this is going to like the comment or the note that I'll put in the program might be like, this is going to burn and suck. Sorry. Like versus like if somebody else was doing something else, like where it's like a, like a, like a top set of squats at like an 8.5 RPE, it's gonna be like, this is very hard grind through it and push. 
It may just, it may just give me a very different way of communicating those cues with that person to just have them understand the, the intention behind what we're doing. Sure. Okay. And, and, and Matt and Matt definitely like he works with more of our specificity based athletes. You know, like you said, he, we work with, you know, he works with some very high level power lifters, you know, just guys that are going for like, you know, again, like over 2000 pound totals, like big, strong dudes. And, you know, for them, like the, the level of specificity that needs to go into their programming is kind of just set, right. Depending on where they are in the season. So there's, there's going to be some very kind of standard linear programming in there. And we might have some undulating accessory work to give them a little bit of autonomy, a little bit of variability more so even in the off season, than when we're kind of ramping for a meet, when I'm working with somebody who's more of like a field sport athlete or somebody where the goal might be more variability based at that point, you know, I don't have to be as linear. You know, we, we might have some strength-based activities that are going to be more linear programmed. Whereas the, the actual accessory work is going to be undulated and change almost every week, right? Monday over Monday, Tuesday over Tuesday, et cetera. Because from that standpoint, we're just looking at patterning. And if I want you to get good from a like propulsion standpoint in a squat pattern, well, I can apply that squat pattern to hundreds of variations between by the time I look at like actual like unilateral, bilateral loading strategies, compression strategies, tempos, sets, reps, whatever. You know, so we we can start looking at if I want variability, I actually want you to be exposed to as many variations of that squat pattern as possible within your accessories, because that gives you more movement options, more degrees of freedom. And when you're like in your actual competition, whether it's a fight or whether you're on a soccer field and you have to be reactive to somebody else or the environment around you, you can now react within space with more confidence and then with more coordination, because you've been exposed to more, again, vector angles, more stimulus, different stimulus over time. Whereas if I have somebody who just has like a standard strength deficit, and that is their limiter, we can go pretty hard on a lot of those bilateral lifts because I want to apply a global stimulus. And if there's somebody with like posterior compression, and that's something I want to work out of, well, we're just going to do like a front squat or a front loaded variation that allows for posterior expansion and anterior compression, right? So we can like, the squats, the squat, we're not married to the actual exercise selection itself when it comes to that standpoint, I think. Right. Yeah, and that's that's one of the things that we try to make sure we do is when we're, we're programming out, we're looking at things from a like a trainable menu uh, standpoint, which is just going to be everything listed out in terms of the joint actions that we're looking to attack, right? So if it's a knee dominant movement, it's any kind of leg pressing, hack squatting, front squatting, back squatting, split squats, anything like that is going to hit the hit the the nail on the head. It's a it's a you're you're bending your knees, um, so it's just it's it's basing it's breaking it down even more so we can look at applying whatever it is that's net that could be necessary for that particular person's assessment, uh, goal considerations, and everything else that's going into that particular person. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Because at the moment, like you're looking at who I work with primarily is combat sport athletes. So when the goal is to increase general strength for guys that are just coming off of a fight, right, we get a transition phase. And then, you know, we got very limited time to get them ready from a general perspective because then right into another camp. But on top of that, some of these guys will take fights on short notice. So we don't know exactly when they may be fighting unless they're a guy like Dustin Poirier or somebody up there that actually knows exactly when they're going to fight. Mm. But most of my guys, even in the UFC, 
they don't know. So they could be fighting in two months, three months, eight weeks, whatever, you know, it could be next week, you know? Yeah. So mm-hmm. the goal really is to get the stimulus and, yeah, and that's one of those things too, is like, especially even, even with the high level guys, like you'll always have fighters that won't make weight and they'll, they'll look for another fighter on like the day of notice. I remember like Donald Cerrone's done that multiple times, be like, Hey, I'll step up. I'm ready to go today. And <laughs> it's, it's like, how do you, how, as a coach, how do you accurately build a training program for somebody who's like, Oh, well, I don't have a fight until June. And then it's like, oh, we're actually going to fight four times in between January and February. It's like, well, oh, all right, well, I guess this is different now. <laughs> it's definitely difficult for that, man. Yeah, I would, I would say, you know, for me, I do run maybe more of a concurrent conjugate style mm-hmm. when it's that, when it's in that particular realm, right? If I know when a guy's going to fight, though, I can phase it out. But for mm-hmm. most of it, it's going to be conjugated. But yeah. again, like in my, like in my opinion, like this is conjugate gets a lot of shit and raw powerlifting because it doesn't it's not necessarily most useful utilizable for raw powerlifting but for fight sport athletes it's definitely going to be more useful because you get to sit at a higher intensity for a longer period of time so it's again exactly like you said if you have really short turnarounds between fights you can just drive that neurological adaptation of strength really 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 easily by having three four five weeks of max intensity work as opposed to like a longer style view of dup style uh, programming that like kyle or i will do with a power lifter where it's like we're going to get one month of high intensity training six weeks before your meet mm-hmm. right like you can get that now and you can do some really good stuff with that right now and like you said with the conjugate style training as well we're getting bands we're getting chains we're getting different bars we're getting different like a lot of specialty equipment that could end up being more useful for a, uh, a fighter because they're getting, like Kyle was talking about, exposure to a significant amount of different vector angles. Uh, they're producing force at different rates, like a banded squat versus a regular squat. This challenging point of the squat is very, very different on each one. So they're getting exposure to a tremendous amount of different stimulus over time, which in a short duration like that with a fighter may end up being a more useful thing to do than just traditional raw linear powerlifting. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. I, let, let me backtrack because I know you, you work with a lot of strength strength athletes, Matt. So what would you feel is like the biggest mistake a lot of those strength sport athletes are making with their trainings so far? Uh, there's two. So the there's two that I see all the time. The, the number one mistake that I see is like, all right, cool. This training cycle worked really well for last month and I did really well. I made amazing progress off of it. So I'm just going to throw it out and make a new one. <laughs> it's like, hold on a second. Like you, you had like in 12 weeks, you did, you put on like this much onto your total and it's the best training cycle you've ever done. Why are you going to change the formula? It's like if Gordon Ramsay was to cook a meal and he's like, this recipe is amazing. It actually got me a Michelin star at my restaurant, but I'm going to just throw it out and try a new thing. Like Ed, you don't do that. You don't mess with the formula yeah. for success. Well, we can change things, but we can change volumes and intensities, but not the whole thing. Yeah. Do you feel like? Do you feel like that's because they are more of like, like an experience driven, or they're dopamine dominant, where they they want that variation? So they're like, ah, fuck it, I'm I'm I'm, I'm sick of this. I want to do something else. Is that maybe why? Is it from a personality? That, that could be it. But what I would look at with that as a coach is I would look at taking, like we talked about, like looking at from a from a standpoint of a trainable menu, where I look at the patterns that we're attacking in each session, and we can swap out exercises that still hit the global pattern of each session. And that's what I do with most of my athletes, right? Is like if I find 
a formula that works really well. It's like, okay, on Monday we did a, like a squat variation, a press variation, another squat variation and a pull. I have a formula that I can use and just change out exercises accordingly because I know you respond really, really well to this order. So if it's like, if it goes from a high bar back squat to a safety bar squat, and then like a, like a flat bench press to a dumbbell press and a, like a Bulgarian split squat to a leg press, I know you're going to respond really well to that formula. So I can change things in the, in between to give you more output and give you the variation that you need without changing so much stuff that we just aren't making progress anymore. Right. Because if I found it's like, it's like we talked about, if I found that secret sauce, I'm not changing the recipe. I'm driving that as much as we can. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. Second biggest mistake I see is everybody drives too much volume. Way too oh, much volume. Way, 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 way too much volume. That's my boy Trevor. That's, yeah. that's Trevor. <laughs> way, 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 way too much volume. So there's a, um, and this is, this is I, I always have to give credit where credit is due when I, when I learn a concept from somebody who's smarter than me. And this is from Chasm Hansen at N1 Education, um, who would be another really good guest to have on if you, if you, have, if you don't know who he is yet. Um, but there's a, there's a point of diminishing returns in terms of volume and training age, right? So as you become a more intermediate or advanced trainee, you become significantly more efficient at contracting tissue. So you don't need to do as much volume to get the same number of stimulating reps, where if you're a beginner or an intermediate, you need to do a lot of work because you're just not mechanically efficient at doing things, right? Like if you're, if, if it's somebody who's like, for, for example, like leg pressing, they may have to do five sets of 10 for a little bit to actually get some stimulus in the quads. But as they've been lifting for two, three, four, five, six years, they may have to do one or two sets of 10 to get that same number of stimulating reps because they're just so much more mechanically efficient at contracting the tissue. And you, I mean, you honestly see this in all athletic realms as well. Like the best athletes typically require the least amount of actual training. Yeah. Uh, You know, and and I've, I've told a lot of athletes in the past, like if, if the things that we do in a weight room are what you're depending on to become elite, you are kind of fucked from the start. Yeah. <laughs> like you're, you're just, you're not elite, right? Like you don't have the genetic potential or just the training and athletic history to maybe be at that level. But like Matt said, it doesn't matter if you're a power lifter or a basketball player or a sprinter, the better athletes accommodate and adapt to stress faster than worse athletes almost, you know, hand over hand, right? So they actually need less overall training volume and they typically create, they get more systemic fatigue faster through more training volume. And that's where, you know, they might have the potential to be quote unquote overtrained. Whereas someone who's actually a lesser athlete training more might not be even with accumulating more volume. Yeah. And, and it's, it's the same thing. Cause if that, if that set bell curve wasn't necessarily true, there would be some pro bodybuilders out there that have started a leg workout on January 1st, 2018, and are still going because they have had, they have such a high training age and they're so there's like, if they just needed more volume every single time, it's like, oh man, that dude's been literally hitting up, like sitting on the leg press for two and a half years. And he's still trying to get some more like work out of this. Like he's been lifting since the seventies. What do you expect? Like, he's just, like, he's got to get more volume in it's. Yeah. It's one of those things where there is a point of diminishing returns, which I think a lot of people aren't um, aware of yet, that sometimes less is going to be more for that particular athlete. Uh, that makes sense. Uh, 100%. I, I, with my guys at the elite level, <clears throat> it's funny because, like, I'll train Dustin maybe one, maybe two times a week, you know, and it's mainly, and we're in camp now, but it's mainly to 
basically complement what he has inside the cage, you know, or, you know, if I have a guy, you know, like Junior Dos Santos, who's been doing this forever, you know, I, I don't need to do a whole lot of volume. That's actually going to be a negative thing for him, especially because right. he has to train. You have all these other modalities of training that you have to do on that given day, not even in throughout the week. We're talking that day. So I get that. That makes a whole lot of sense. But <laughs> I've been watching I've been watching both of you guys now for a minute um, on social media. Actually, shout out to Trevor, too, for putting me on to you guys. Uh, Trevor Jaffe, if you haven't done so, That's check my him boy, out. Trevor Jaffe. Yeah, yeah dude. So, I've known that guy, shit, he's known me for like 10 years um, wow. since, since I was fighting, started fighting. But um, what I wanted to ask was, Kyle, I, I've been seeing you do a lot of stuff, single leg stuff, um, you know, a lot of gate, uh, like, optimizing gate patterning and mechanics. What do you feel from that perspective? How can we actually train to optimize our gate cycle mechanics coming off of, let's say, like someone like myself with a knee injury or a hip injury? Yeah, I mean, and, and that's where, you know, that's one of my primary assessments for any athlete, you know, is I look at respiratory mechanics and I look at gait for every human I train. And then, you know, secondary assessments are going to be more specific to, whatever activity or task that person wants to perform. And then a, a third level of, of assessment is if I see mismatches between the primary and the secondary, I'll start doing table tests and looking at passive joint function. And for me, you know, coming off an injury, I'm probably actually going to start with passive tests, uh, looking at things like femoral hip, IR, ER, hip extension, looking at, you know, if it's an upper body thing, humeral, IRER and then abduction potentially where that passive assessment allows me to look at movement potential, right? Now I can start, I can get that information. I can look at having you go through patterns, right? Whether it's a squat pattern, whether it's a gate pattern, a hinge pattern, whatever. And I can see now how your body accommodates even the stress of gravity from that standpoint, right? So now I can look at movement ability, and when I look at training, my goal with, you know, that individual is how I can take movement ability closer to movement potential. And I'm going to use exercise selections now to have that individual start accommodating stimulus or accommodating load within the ranges of motions that they're having trouble finding, right? So if I'm looking at gait and, and someone has a knee injury and I notice that they're spending a lot of times supinated and they're having a hard time going through like a stance phase where they're pronating and getting internal rotation. I'm probably going to see that on a table test too, where somebody has, has a lack of either internal rotation at all yeah. because they're already stuck there or they're, they have a lack of internal rotation and, and a ton of external rotation. Right. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm going to see it on both ends of the spectrum where I'm either going to have an individual who's kind of stuck in ER at the femur and they can't get to full IR or I'm going to have somebody who's actually stuck in IR and they're already at max end range. So they can't facilitate more IR during like a gate cycle or a squat propulsion phase. And I need to know the difference between those two things for me to be able to provide interventions because I'm actually going to provide opposite exercise selections for those two scenarios. Right. So if I have somebody who's stuck in ER and having trouble getting IR at the femur, for instance, I'm going to pick like a front foot elevated split squat for that person where I can drive more early to mid propulsion and I can have them start feeling an instep getting femoral IR as they're going through hip flexion. Whereas if I have somebody who's 
in IR and can't get into ER and that's causing the issue, I might do like a rear foot elevated split squat, which is now going to drive mid to late propulsion where we're transitioning from IR to ER with full hip extension and knee extension and getting supination of the actual foot. So if I'm looking at gait, I can kind of see where they're stuck based on just differences in stance and swing. And that's going to show me what's happening. And, you know, whether I'm looking at a foot that is not pronating or not supinating well, a heel that's not inverting or everting well, again, tibial and femoral internal external rotation, looking at the pelvis itself, seeing if they're getting into, uh, again, nutation or counter nutation or posterior, posterior tilt versus anterior tilt reciprocal movement. You can start adding all these things up and figuring it out. Um, but I'm going to look at both passive and active assessments and look for differences and variances between those two things. Yeah, and that's one of the, yeah, one of the so- interesting things that we've had is we actually had, uh, we have a, I have a client that we work with who has, um, who self assessed herself with all of the stuff that Kyle has. So like limited internal rotation, um, limited, uh, post like posterior expansion issues, uh, all of this stuff that Kyle like ta- typically has and talks about because then like watched and followed his Instagram page and just did all of the stuff that Kyle was trying to do. And it literally did nothing for her compensations because she had the opposite ones. And as soon as she started remote coaching with us, it was like, Oh, well you just, none of this stuff will work for you because you're just a different person. And as soon as we switched it, everything was better immediately. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> social media is tough man yeah it's like the, no context whatsoever it's like i'll i'll just like post you know and, and matt does the same like we'll post like our workouts right or something and people are like oh like cool like that'll work for me and it's like well, i'm gonna do that too it's like yeah yeah like that. it, it might there's a there's like a 50 percent chance it's going to be super useful for you but the the other 50 percent, like maybe not at all right so it's definitely, um, it's interesting when we start talking to people and people start asking us questions, you know, in that realm. So you, Kyle, you do more of PRI, right? Can you explain to us like what that actually is and how you utilize that? Yeah. So that's where a lot of it is. Be nice, Kyle. You saw my, <laughs> so yeah. So I, I've definitely gone down that rabbit hole a little bit. And I, I definitely want to present a caveat where a lot of people go so far down that rabbit hole, we're no longer training. And, you know, one of, one of the big things with me is, you know, I, I've taken, you know, several courses, several seminars and, and realized pretty early on with that experience that a lot of the people that were taking these courses are, are, are in a post rehabilitative phase or they're chiropractors, you know, and they're not trainers, right? You know, they're people who are looking to rehab people from injuries and, and maybe pain management. And that's not my realm, right? Like I, I want to help people progressively overload and increase performance and do those things. So one of my big goals, and this is something that I got from Pat Davidson, who's, who is, again, someone who really kind of changed my philosophy on just humans uh, in general when I started working with him back in the day. And I want to try to find a way to use these principles because I do think they are good movement principles in a way that allows people to start loading and applying more stimulus rather than taking them further away from fitness. So the, the big thing with PRI is it, it kind of starts at respiration. Like we look at the position of a rib cage and a diaphragm uh, because the rib cage is your center of mass and where it's positioned over your pelvis in space when you're standing, 
will dictate different compression and expansion strategies for that person. So if you've got somebody who exhibits a lot of thoracic extension and you're looking at them from the side and their rib cage is over their forefoot, well, you know that you're going to have now compression on the backside. So you're going to have shortened lats, traps, rhomboids. You're going to have more scapular retraction. You're going to have more lateral expansion. And that person is going to have a hard time moving their scaps, getting humeral flexion, especially, and they're going to, and a hard time rotating their actual rib cage for like triplanar movement. And that's going to affect what's happening at the pelvis as well. Cause if the rib cage is out front, the pelvis is going to be more anteriorly tilted to accommodate it. Right. And that's going to affect now everything from your pelvic floor and your ability to maintain pressure, uh, IAP all the way down to like femoral rotation, flexion, extension patterns, all the way down to the feet. And I think what we look at with PRI in, in the simplest form possible is we're just looking at creating internal abdominal pressure through a positional strategy rather than a muscular bracing strategy. Because muscular bracing, while it might be really good for like a one RM squat, is not really good for somebody who is like in a fight or someone who's playing in a basketball game or somebody who's like running a half marathon. Like you are going to fatigue yourself really quickly. If you're trying to manage everything with like your abdominal complex actively. Whereas if we, if we have a good position and we've got good, you know, coordination between our diaphragm and our pelvic floor, a lot of those intrinsic abdominal muscles, like it's specifically the oblique complexes, will be managing strategy through exhalation and inhalation mechanics for you. And they will be creating pressure through the, the ascension and descension of the diaphragm. And you'll have IAP without having to brace for it. And I think that for us is a big difference too. When we're, when we're working with like anaerobic based athletes versus aerobically based athletes, right? Like you will see aerobically based athletes like power lifters, like, sprinters where we're talking about, you know, 15 seconds to under of like max effort, you know, performance, they will adopt certain compression strategies because, because they're muscle strategies. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But when you look at like aerobically based athletes, you'll typically see different postures, right? Where you'll have more anterior compression, you'll have more posterior expansion. And that allows that athlete to get more oxygen into their system more oxygen in the system allows for more oxygen into muscular tissue and less occlusion, less lactic threshold. And, oh, and I think, hold on Kyle. So I don't mean to cut you off because it, it's going to get to my brain and, and I'm already jet lagged. All good. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I have my, like my fighters are obviously super hypothetic in a lot of ways. Cause mm -hmm. that's just the way their posture is when they fight. Do you feel that it maybe we need to work on, increasing extension now but or will that negatively affect their ability to produce energy because of the oxygen that they won't be getting because we're working in that extension does that, does so that make sense it does and that that's actually a question that we get all the time with with certain athletes and and that's something that you know when we're looking at training, like if I want to look at giving that person more variability, because I, I don't want anybody stuck at either end range. Like I don't want you stuck at full thoracic extension and I don't necessarily want you kyphotic all the time. So from a training perspective, if they're already leaning that direction, that's where like 
Matt and I, if we're working with an athlete, will give somebody more extension from a training perspective. And we will cue that because we want that person to be able to get more concentric orientation of those back muscles. Because what we see with people who are at full end range, again, like this kind of goes back even to our femur conversation. If you're, if you're more kyphotic and you're at, and you've got like fully lengthened, like say traps, uh, lats and rhomboids, right? You've got fully concentrically orientated pecs and abs. Well, that means you can't go further in that direction, right? Because you have to come from a, a, a level of extension to get into flexion. If you're already in full flexion, you've actually got limited range of motion, right? So when you have somebody say throwing a punch and they're already in that position, they're going to have to compensate further down the chain to get more striking power. Whereas if they're able to come from a position of more humeral extension, more retraction, that's going to create a stretch reflex across the front side within the pec, within the delt. And they can actually get more power generated from the shoulder and from the torso, right? So we want to be able to get them a little closer back, you know, a little closer to neutral, and that will take more extension. And that extension will actually allow them to optimize that flexion to a much higher level. And I think that's one of the, one of the other important things that we try to talk about with our people as well, is that when we're, we're looking at facilitating those positions and those movements, we're looking at creating and choosing exercises that will create that environment. Right. So we're, we're not, we're not like, and, and this is, this is one of the things that we, we kind of try to hammer down in the group mentorship and all of the other the courses that we run is if you are a person that can walk up the stairs, you're probably too strong for a lot of these passive interventions, Right. Like, because a lot of these, you're going to be laying on your, on your back, which reduces the amount of load that's on your system, right? Because it reduces gravity. So now instead of having my whole body weight on my, on my, on the the pelvis or on whatever I'm looking to change, I now have maybe 40% of it because of the, because of the way that gravity is going to interact with my body. So what we look at with this is the fact that the, the stimulus in a lot of these low level interventions is so low that it may not actually provide anything other than a cognitive reference point, right? So that which and a cognitive reference point is going to be great because you now have a, th a thought of what it's supposed to feel like. But what we want to do is we want to do whatever we can to chase that adaptation through a loaded strategy, because that's how we're actually going to start influencing structure and muscular tissue, mm -hmm. right? Because one of the things that we need to, we need to always remember is that like, there's two, there's two things that are really important with this is that muscles only pull and that bones don't do anything on their own. Right. So like, we're not going to be changing the, 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 the way a bone, like bone structures sit without actually forcing some contraction of tissue. Right. Cause like we need to have muscles that pull from origin to insertion or insertion to origin to create that strategy and create that actual change. And there needs to be enough stimulus that that starts to become a dominant strategy, right? Because it's it's like we it's like we said it's like if you're if you're somebody who's like an extremely extended posture and then you do like a cat camel stretch, it's like well, there's no actual stimulus in that that's going to create more of a kyphotic spine. But if we get you to do something like a like a front squat or a zercher squat with like two twenty five, three fifteen, four hundred five, like if, like some of my athletes have done. That's enough weight to get you to push it, put you into a slightly different position, right? Or if we have like a chest supported dumbbell row where you're rowing like hundreds to 120s and it's pulling you into more of a kyphotic shape, like that is now enough stimulus to actually start creating structural change. So it comes down to exercise. We, we, we want to make sure that whatever we're doing with our athletes and our people 
the interventions that we're choosing are fitness based as opposed to passive, uh, passive based, because that's going to provide the actual uh, impetus for change. And that's something, I think I heard something that you guys, like you had to put one of your power lifters on a chest supported row at like 15 on there to just get that adaptation of protracting and have them breathe. Yeah. 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 The the guy's looking at like a, is he shooting for a thousand pound deadlift or 903, 903 deadlift. Right. So big, strong guy. He doesn't know that yet, but he's shooting for 903. Yeah. So, (laughs) so yeah, it's like with, with him, it's like, um, a bare position, you know, breathing drill. Like he's not going to get any expansion. There's literally Nothing. too much tissue that's so concentrically oriented on his back. Like we had to load and have him act like again, stabilize his rib cage completely. Yeah. Overload that tissue and just let him breathe and stretch and let the weight literally pull him down for him. And it, and it literally, I mean, was painful. Like yeah. he felt like muscles were ripping. Sure. Right. You know, so like, this is where, you know, for us, like circling back to PRI, like I said, it's post rehabilitative, right? So a lot of the interventions you're working with people who are super detrained and that sensory motor work is very useful for those people, because as Matt said, like they need the sensation, they need the cognitive reference point for some of this uh, muscular integration, like trying to find hamstrings or trying to find internal obliques on respiration. And if they're that detrained, that may actually be stimulus for them. that. That's going to be a higher stimulus for them than it will be for like one of us or, or one of your elite athletes. Right. But even with them, once they create like say unconscious competence within some of these postures, like on the floor, we need to get them on their feet. And we need to get them loaded in some way because competence is the end of adaptation. Like a lot of people, you know, kind of promote searching for competency within movement, which is good, but it also means you're no longer applying enough stress to be novel to the system. So you're no longer going to be adapting to a new stimulus. Right. So, so we want to find a way to apply either uh, again, this is where Matt and I talk with a lot of people about programming, right? Like, Stimulus can be applied in a lot of different ways, right? So we can increase complexity yes. for more of a com, you know, a cognitive stimulus. We can increase volume, right? To look at fatigue management, because again, competency usually breaks down as fatigue accumulates. And we can increase intensity as a as a new stimulus because competency usually breaks down as things become harder, right? From an intensity standpoint. So depending on the athlete, depending on their goals and, and what their task demands are we can look at applying a new stimulus. We just need to make sure that we're applying the correct one based on what they're trying to do. Like that power lifter. Well, we have three specific tasks, like increasing complexity. Is not probably going to get us very far with that person, but depending on what their limiter is or what like off season or in season, you know, variation they're in either intensity or volume would be an appropriate choice for that person. Yeah. As a fighter who needs a ton of variability, complexity might be a better stimulus choice. We don't know. Yeah. It's like that same kettlebell flow will not work for my for this power lifter, but it may work for a fighter really, really well because of the complexity demands. Yeah. Looking at coordination and athletic, you know, drive. Yeah. That was that was actually gonna be my next question for Matt and, and for Kyle, actually, is like because of the two different natures of, of, of athlete, right? You have the strength sport athlete, and then you have the, uh, the, the field-based athlete or, or like the say combat sport athlete. Mm-hmm. What's the difference for you guys as far as programming goes and having that strategy um, to get them to where they need to be? 
So when I look at it in terms of programming, if we're talking about a power lifter, we have three mechanical tasks that need to be completed. Squat, bench, and deadlift, which are fixed range of motion, fixed uh fixed loading patterns and fixed like, like load vectors, right? So everything about them is going to be, it needs to be as replicable as possible. And everything about doing that task needs to be something that's super controlled and ready to go, right? So what we need to do with this, and this is one of the things that we talk about with specificity versus variability-based athletes, I need to make training and things like that and conditions as predictable as possible going into the, the event so that they can have the greatest chance at success doing something that's mechanical and repeatable with somebody who's a more variability based athlete, like a combat sport athlete or a field sport athlete, you now have somebody else who's trying to kill you, which throws all predictability out the window, right? Yeah. So it's, it's a very difficult thing to program out for and they, they like have a specificity based program because you literally don't know what that other person's, how they're going to react because that person has a brain. Whereas the load and the weight in a powerlifting sport or and like on a barbell or an Olympic lifting, there's no, there's no thought about it. It's just moving one position in one direction. With a combat sport athlete or a field sport athlete, you are now fight, going against somebody else who has their own game plan and their own idea of what to work for. So this yep. is where, like Kyle was talking about, adding complexity to a training program like this or changing movements or cha like having a, like a faster like auto-regulated program where they're doing more of a conjugate style like you were talking about or things like that, where they have to learn how to react to different stimulus faster may end up being a beneficial adaptation for them because the more repeatable in nature things are going to be, the less likely they are to be able to have that, that, that mental fluidity in an actual event is what I would say with that, right? Because like, if we're looking at this in like, like if it, like the example would be like a leg press versus like a, like a split squat or walking lunges or something like that. Like a leg press is repeatable. It moves from point A to point B and it has that same fixed range of motion on every single time where walking lunges on like sand will not. So it, your brain is forced to react to that stimulus differently than it would to a leg press. And that's one of those things where like, if we're looking at training a, like a combat sport athlete, we need to have a little bit more complexity involved in it because they need to be able to respond to external stimulus better than a power lifter does because nothing is fixed. Yeah. Yeah. I would say the, the, the big thing that we look at is, you know, specificity and variability are going to be a continuum and the specific, like the thing, something that we tell everybody is like specificity always has a cost. And, and that cost is variability. And anytime that you're creating like a very specificity based program, you you're obviously looking at the, the goal outcomes, right. Mm -hmm. But you also have to look at and weigh what that person is giving up for that specificity, because that might produce a negative return on investment for a lot of athletes. And, you know, typically what we see with, you know, field sport athletes or basketball players or fighters, that the, the guys who are the best or guys or girls who are the best in the weight room are typically not the best overall athletes, right. On, on the, you know, in, in the sport. So you're, you're also looking at, I think Matt, Matt's point about the predictability of the sport, I think is huge, right? Because the environment will dictate what qualities you need to develop. And, and something like a powerlifting, like you're everything set from the stance on up to the, to the exercise selection, whatever, but there's nothing. Especially if you compete in a monolift, you literally don't have to move. Yes. <laughs> you're, not, you're not even stepping out. Yeah. You're just. Boop, boop, done. Yeah. You're, <laughs> 
You know, so if you're looking at somebody who's in a more dynamic sport, like you can assume movement qualities and physiological qualities that person needs to train, but there, but everything's also going to be reactive. So there's also a tactical element that that person needs to, to develop over time, right. Where they can strategize and they can think on the fly and, and they can actually have like cognitive reference during their sport. And I think that's a whole nother development that you see with the best athletes in any sport is they're also able to regulate their autonomic systems, you know, within their sport too. And they can actually, you know, not just go full amygdala, but actually start making decisions and actually start having some, some tactical development during that sport as well. And, and I think that's where, you know, when I'm looking at training a, an athlete, who's going to be more dynamic, like I might be assessing physical or physiological qualities that they need for their sport, right? Whether it's work capacity, aerobic capacity, maybe they do have a strength deficit and they just need more stimulus. And I will train those things, but I also know that I'm not training specific exercises. I'm training qualities that then need to be integrated into their actual sport. And they need to be able to apply these things and complexities probably and variability are probably going to allow me to integrate better and more different environments and more different situations. Yeah. I think that, I mean, we can take as, as, as for me, um, cause I, obviously I competed in powerlifting. Uh, I competed in strongman and I'm also, I was a pro fighter for eight or nine years. I worked with a lot of fighters. Mm-hmm. I can take things from those particular lifts. Right. Mm-hmm. And like we talked about, Kyle, where you were saying that we were just trying to get a stimulus of strength Mm -hmm. with those bilateral movements. And then you can work on variability with the accessory work again to get, I guess, adaptations in different force vectors and things of that nature. So I think you could take things from both. But what I would say is that I do like the fact that you guys are making sure that you're paying attention to the athletes and what their needs are from a, either a specificity base or a variability base. Yeah. I'm going to take that with me for sure. A lot, of, a lot of coaches really don't understand that, and they try to put their system of what they learned and only work that system, and they don't have their own principles aligned. And I think that that's an issue, right? Yeah. We actually just had a comment on one of Kyle's posts this morning that was saying that um, – this, this very famous powerlifting coach squats with a five foot wide stance. So you need to do it too, Gladys, the 40 year old housewife. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't work like that. It's every, like, you have to look at the individual athlete or the individual client as the most important thing. And we need to fit to fit them where they are. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Oh, perfect. Uh, all right, guys. So I wanted to, like a couple of my guys, you know, I have my own mentorship program. I got, I have like, think right now we're looking at 450 coaches that we've uh, been able to work with but these guys I I was I was bigging you guys up I was like man you gotta check them out you know so they wanted to know um and so do I fuck it it's my my podcast I'm gonna ask questions (laughs) Uh, what books do you guys recommend um one for let's say biomechanics Kyle and then the other one maybe for let's say uh uh psychology right for understanding the athlete I'm a poor choice to ask this one too, because I'm still uh, halfway through the first book that Kyle recommended me in my individual mentorship a year and a half ago. Uh, he's the book guy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, audio book. Audio book. Right. <laughs> the, yeah. The, the biomechanics books are tough. You know, I, I think understanding just like human skeletal structure is going to be important. And, and uh, 
like any like university anatomy physiology based book will, will tell you that I, I think from a movement perspective, a lot of the courses and, and even a lot of the mentorships that I see out there right now are doing a really good job and probably a better job with kind of new ways or new lenses to look at things through, you know? So I look at things like, like, obviously we mentioned Pat a few times, like Pat's rethinking the big patterns program. And he's actually coming out with a book that's going to be on RP, I believe. Um, is something I would recommend to anybody. I got a chance to, to preview that a little bit and give him some feedback uh, last year on it. I think, you know, there's some really good biomechanics course. Like I, uh, there's a guy named Alex Effer who runs a really good eight week course that kind of runs through assessment processes. Um, Zach Couples is somebody that we've uh, both worked with, with clients and then also with ourselves in the past. He has a great YouTube channel that kind of goes over a lot of things as well. Um, you know, we, we do a lot of that within our stuff, I think from a psychology perspective um, and also just wrapping autonomics into, into psychology, you know, there, there's a few, I, I always recommend that everybody read Sapolsky's why zebras don't get ulcers uh, just as a better understanding of what's happening just from a sensorial perspective and what drives different hormonal and, and outputs and neurotransmitter outputs, because that again is going to influence your actual cognitive and decision-making abilities. Um, I think uh, there, another book that, you know, we talk about as far with a lot of our people is called um, I'm going to say this wrong homeostasis, allostasis and the cost of physiological adaptation is another good book. Uh, it sounds really boring, but it's actually pretty well written. Oh, <laughs> All right. You can see that, see by your face. He just goes, Oh, I'm not reading no, that one. I'm not, I'm not going to read that one. I'll get that one. Uh, you can do the cliff notes of that. I'll take that real quick. <laughs> yeah. Um, another good, <laughs> yeah. Another, another good one that I like is called the upside of stress. Right. Which again, I think, you know, now, right now, especially socially, you know, people like stress gets a bad rap where the reality of it is, is everything stress, right? Gravity stress, light is stress, sound is stress. Like any, any information that you come across as stress, we've just accommodated a lot of it to where it no longer creates an adaptation, right? You know, and, and stress gives us the opportunity for adaptation. So stress isn't bad. The inability to cope with stress would be, would be the negative, right? So like that book, I think is really eye-opening for a lot of people as well, as far as just reframing the conversation around stress and how it affects our psychology. Matt, what you got for me? Give me, give me like, give me, give me, you know what? Give me like a, you can give me a podcast. Give me a fucking Disney movie. I don't care. Man. <laughs> <laughs> Disney, Disney movies. <laughs> we're, we're talking my level now. That's where I live. Yeah. Lion King. What else you got? Aladdin. What you want? So I, with, with books that I read, I really, I really a lot more fictional books because I don't want, I don't like to be the, the coach or the trainer that sits there and only reads fitness books. Cause it, yeah, again, yeah. it's like, I, I work in it. I've worked in a gen pop realm for my entire career and only very recently transitioned into training more specificity based athletes. So for me, if I'm sitting there like talking about, well, like, you, you know, your autonomic stress system is going to like, this is the response to it. My 50 year old accountant or 50 year old, like, like oil and gas broker literally does not care. He's going to go, all right, cool. How's it going to get me to lose 30 pounds? Like by in, in a month, it's like, well, I mean, it will eventually, but not necessarily now. So what I try to do is I try to read books that'll get me a little bit more, um, a little bit more ability to get out of my bubble and get into other um, other 
uh, like have, have different like, conversations with other people and give me yeah. different perspectives. Cause that's one of those things too, is like, if we look at any book, um, Kyle talks about this a lot too. Any, any book is going to be the hero's journey, right? So it's about that person and that the protagonist of whatever book you're looking for overcoming some potential insurmountable obstacle to achieve a certain task or goal. Right. Um, and one of the authors that I find who does a really, really good job with that is um, Haruki Murakami. So Haruki Murakami is a, is a Japanese author who everything that they, every book that he writes um, is about overcoming personal obstacles and personal issues that are self-imposed by a person to become better at the end, right? And one of the, the more interesting books that I read from him recently, and they all sound really boring, but they're actually end up being very, very entertaining books, um, is this one called Killing Commendatore, where it's about a painter who fle- like le- quits his job, quits everything that he's doing, and then goes and hides in the Japanese mountainside for a year and a half. And it's about his interactions with people and overcoming the struggles that he had that made him get super stressed and quit his job to become a more well-rounded and better person towards the end. And it's all about the communicate. It's all about how he communicates with people and how he self-organizes himself under that new stimulus, which is not having any interaction anymore, not having any income and not having any other job, right? So that's what I, I find is like all, like all books that you're going to read are going to be about the hero's journey. And like, it's, it's, that's why movies and books are going to be are inherently successful. Mm-hmm. So I try to do ones that are going to be told in more of a story fashion, because for me, that's just more entertaining. I get more education and things like that out of courses. So like Zach Couples' course, um, I haven't taken Alex Effer's course, but Alex Effer's course is one that's highly recommended by Kyle Dobbs. Um, yeah, it's you. Um, Pat Davidson's <laughs> Rethinking the Big Patterns is another phenomenal course. Uh, Chasm Hansen's Biomechanics Program is another phenomenal course. Um, that one's actually probably the best the best one that I've taken. Yeah, like that, his and Zach Couples are the best two that I've taken. Yeah, yeah. Um, and one education for that is his, yeah. is his company. Yeah, so he has a, a course that you can purchase on his website. It's uh, it's a little bit more expensive, but it's literally like 75 hours of direct, directly applicable stuff. Yeah. So it's like, like I, I get more out of a medium where somebody's uh, where it feels like a little bit more conversational based as opposed to somebody sitting there like instructing me in a book. No, I, I hear you yeah. on that too, because I, I'm more of like, I'm actually more of like, an, uh, I like an action. I'm like an action learner, but I also, yeah. I, commu- I like to communicate. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's perfect. perfect. Right. And, and my, my lineage is, uh, I, I come from a long line of business owners who don't like being told what to do. So when I'm lit- like sitting there reading a book that's like telling me what to do, I'm like, hey, fuck you, book. I'm not doing that shit. Who are you to tell me what to do? This is how most of our conversations go to. Right. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's awesome, man. Well, all right. So we got, I got a couple more um, before I'll let you guys go because I know we're running short on time here. Um, it's what are it's most Saturday. Books? I've got nothing else to do today. Oh, well, <laughs> Kyle's got a family, so we got to let him I, go. <laughs> well, yeah. I got like I got like seven on my boxes. They're like looking at me like, are "What starting? are you doing?" Yeah, like, and they're and I got a window. Yeah, I wish I could turn it and show you. But I'm like in a fucking fishbowl, and I'm looking out there, and they're just looking at me. But I'm trying to stay focused on y'all. You got to get like, that tinting button where you just press it and it fogs I, up the windows. That'd I be wanna, amazing. I want to get the. I want to just get like a curtain, and I can push the button, and it just fucking goes down on them like that. Mm. And I'm just like, yeah. So they're like trying to hide underneath it. And <laughs> hey, <guys>. hey we're, Phil. <laughs> 
right. So, all right. So, bo- one more for both of you guys, and then actually two more. Sorry. So, what are the most what are most young coaches missing today in terms of training athletes and uh, and coaching clients? Oh, that's young- I think I think that's one we could answer in like one or two sentences. Like I for me, I find that that's communication. Mm-hmm. communicate like the like every single coach that we've ever worked with in the group mentorship has all of the questions that they've asked us have been about like biomechanics and about all that all the like the movement and programming and stuff like that and they're all really good at doing that stuff to begin with and whenever it comes to the personal development sections of our group mentorship you can just see them just like i am uncomfortable i i took it took me 10 hours to write out my strengths and weaknesses i don't know what like i i and i got four values done that's it I yeah, couldn't yeah. get anything else. Like that's where I find most most people end up losing out on is the ability to communicate and self-assess and work on personal development over professional development. Yeah, I will 100% second that, all of it. Um, and also just to, to critically think, right? I think there's mm. so much, there's so much education out there. There's so many different seminars and courses and people will go to a three-day seminar and complete, like they'll they'll throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? They'll reframe their entire training principles. They'll th- everything they've ever done in the past is now wrong because something else might contradict it within a certain context. And they'll become a whole new coach, right? Where, you know, people who've been in the industry longer, you know, I, I think we start looking at these different seminars is they're all just different philosophies. They're all just different principles. It's somebody's idea. Like they were all just, you know, again, they were all, uh, you know, invented for lack of a better word by, by another guy, another coach, another physical therapist. And now we can look at these things as just tools that we can combine with other systems we've learned for better application. And, and, you know, that's why, like, for me, you know, we, like Matt and I will get associated with PRI and like, we appreciate PRI principles for the context that they're in but we actually use very little of it when we actually start training our clients. And we'll have, we'll have clients sometimes they're like, they'll look at their program and be like, where's all the cool shit. And it's like, well, based on your assessment, you don't need the, the prep work or, or whatever, right? Like you're, you move super well and we can just get you under a bar or we can get you training faster. We don't need to lie, like roll around on the ground and breathe. You know, we can actually get to the things that are going to apply stimulus and, and work. And I think that's one of the big things we see with coaches is a lot of young coaches just do things because they think they should rather than because the the athlete or the task actually dictates it. So true, yeah. it's, it's funny because I, I tell my guys all the, this all the time because, again, they're looking for that that one thing that's mm-hmm. going to help that athlete. Right. Or they're looking for the best assessment or what's going to be the best system for them. And I'm telling them, and even with me, with what I do, and I, and I give them principles or I give them my principles and they can follow and figure out what their principles are. Yep. You know, I'm trying not to be that guy to be like, this is how it is. Yeah. And this is the only way to do it. And if you are doing that, well, then that's going to be an issue, right? Because I, I feel like you never should live in absolutes, right? That makes mm-hmm. sense. You know, I've done FRC. I, I, I know, I understand DNS principles. I, I get that. And we use that sometimes, but it's not the only thing we do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but 100% agree with you guys on that. So the last one is going to be, what's the best advice someone has ever given you? 
Oh man, that was uh, best advice that somebody's ever given me. Was actually uh, shout out to Kyle here. Uh, it was the when I was being mentored by him, and he called me a bitch for procrastinating. <laughs> yeah, like seriously, because like that that was a that was a very pivotal moment in my life where I went from being very complacent in my job to then like a year later, like ten months later, quitting my job and going full time remote. So like that was a that was a moment that was a big catalyst for change for me. Um, just moving moving into the the direction that I wanted to go because at that point I'd been very very comfortable in a job where I was not developing myself and not becoming a better version of me, but was making a lot of money and just sitting there consistently making really good money to do very very little. Like I was maybe working twenty to twenty two hours a week and making six figures easily. Like I, my life was great. And that was one of the biggest things was I became super stale and stagnant. And as soon as I got that kind of kick in the ass and got told that I was procrastinating and I was not going to amount to anything, if I didn't make any changes and the changes that I needed to make, I never, I would not be here at like right now. So like, that was probably a more influential thing than you thought it was at that point, Kyle. But that was probably one of the, the most influential things I was at, that's happened to me in, in my entire life. I'll take it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Get a little sappy out here. <laughs> I would like to say that Matt Matt's uh, Matt's given me the best influential quote, but he hasn't. And and I, <laughs> it just is what it is. Well, we uh, can't make this whole podcast a circle jerk, Kyle. We, we, not we really we really can't. No, I'm not even sure if it's a quote, but it's just one of those things. I think it's more of an example, you know. And like I grew up. In, in rural Missouri and my parents are literally the hardest working people I've ever met, you know, my, my dad and then, and my mom both. And I think the biggest thing that I've always kind of taken from that is, you know, we always see the expression, like, especially in the age of social media, like we see the outputs, like we see the success that people have and we very rarely understand what it took for them to get there. And, and I think we make a lot of assumptions sometimes that somebody got lucky or somebody just kind of fell into a position. And, and I think the naivety of that uh, is, is pretty astounding for the most part, you know, and, and when we start thinking about somebody being more successful to us or somebody being in a position we want to be, and they just lucked into it. And I, I think a lot of, uh, a lot of individuals, myself included, kind of critique those people more often than we actually look at what they really do well, that, that again, might be different than what we're doing and try to evolve our own processes. And, and I think if you don't question yourself more than you question other people, you're just looking for validation and you're not looking for actual growth. And, you know, we, we talk about this with people all the time and especially in the age of social media, just looking at who we follow and, and, and who we respect, right. Is we're either looking for validation or we're looking for somebody to challenge us or we're looking to challenge ourselves. And, and, you know, just like any other, you know, stimulus or physiological adaptation, like we don't grow as humans without challenges, right? Like, and I think that's a big thing. And again, not, not a quote, but I think just the philosophy, you know, that I think a lot of, a lot of coaches kind of misunderstand is, you know, you can't get so stuck in your own beliefs that you actually compartmentalize your growth and you're just looking for validation. I think, you know, the, the kind of dogmatic and kind of the tribal, uh, just belief system oriented basis of, of fitness in this industry kind of dictates that we all kind of get in echo chambers. And a lot of us just, you know, like, like Matt said, like, we're just, Oh, we're like, we're all PRI guys. And we're just kind of like, 
pat each other on the back and tell each other how great we are. And like, yeah, of course you're doing awesome. Cause I do the same thing. And, and we're going to criticize everybody else and tell them to fuck off. And, and the reality of it is we should probably be looking at what they're doing because they're also like those FRC guys or those DNS guys, they're also achieving a level of success with their athletes. And we should probably look at what they're doing and seeing if we can add those principles to what we already know so that we can be the best versions of ourselves also. And that's great. Listen, I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and let you guys shout out what you're doing, right? You got the mentorship, you got your online coaching. Let's get into that. I want everybody to know where they can find that at and also your social media handles, because those are tremendous uh, sources of information too, as well. Cool. Uh, so my Instagram is at Matt Domney, just first last name. So M-A-T-T-D-O-M-N-E-Y. Um, yeah, I mean, that's where you can find me. My, my uh, program is called Powerlifting Evolved. We are running a powerlifting into, uh, coaching mentorship where we do biomechanics, program design. Um, and I have I usually get a large list of guest speakers that come in and present on a random topic of their choosing. Um, I think the one, we, we've decided that we're going to make one of them a more permanent topic because it was phenomenally well-received and something that I struggle to teach. Um, so the, the topic that we have that mine's going to be, uh, that's going to be running more, uh, on repeat from one presenter is coach athlete relationship. And as somebody who's a bit more extroverted myself, when people ask me how to become a better at coaching other people, I'm like, I, I, I don't know, man, just stop sucking at talking to people. Just be better. Um, because I don't have, I've never had a struggle with that where like, this is another, like this coach is somebody who struggled with that tremendously and has had to work very hard at becoming better at uh, the interpersonal re- relationship building with a coach to, to athlete. So he'll be probably sticking around a little bit more permanently, hopefully. Um, but that's, that's my stuff. And then, I mean, Kyle, take it away here. Bring us yeah. Home yeah. My, my Instagram is just compound performance with an underscore after it. Uh, somebody with like no picture and three followers has the real compound performance Instagram. So that's not me. Uh, the, all of our stuff is in both of our link trees as well, as far as the development programs and the training. Our website is www.compoundperformance.com and, and everything's on that. Um, the group mentorship, uh, we run quarterly. So we'll have a Q1 cohort starting, I believe the second week of January. It's mm-hmm. a 10 week program where we, we cover everything from self-development, the training development to business development. And, and usually in that order, um, we want to make sure that you have something you know, we're, we're not business coaches. We want to make sure you have something worth selling uh, before, <laughs> before you put it out there. Uh, and then from a training perspective, you know, we we're taking people on at all times, you know, based off that we have another coach that works with us, um, Sam, who, who does a great job as well. Uh, and, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's all out there. We're pretty consistent on social media. Um, I post more than Matt does which is ironic because I'm the introverted person and he's the, the extroverted person. He's probably too busy actually interacting with humans in real life. I'm too busy in the DMs. <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, you'll find just about all of our information there. And, um, and yeah, we're, we're super excited about what's going on. We're about to launch um, our own just podcast as well. And just where we just oh, yeah. shoot with people and, and kind of talk with people. And uh, so that, that'll be fun. Um, super informal, most likely. Oh yeah. We'll, we'll say some smart things here and there too. Whatever you're yeah. dealing with me, it's going to be very informal. Yeah. Matt, Matt keeps it light. He makes sure that I don't get, I don't go just full nerd on, on things. So. Uh, 
Got to bring you back down. Hold on. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. We, we, we balance each other out really well. I, I, told a, I told a friend of mine once that I'm the, the person who gets to translate the smart stuff that Kyle says into stupid terms for other people. <laughs> I, got, I got some guys that I work with sometimes, you know, some, some colleagues, and, and they're all academia. And I'm like, I'm like the merger of that. Like, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Exactly, uh, that's me. I'm the I'm the conduit for everybody else. <laughs> yeah. He just said fucking jump. That's all he said. He's like, yeah. you just got to jump. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever, though. Just jump. It's all good. Um, that's great, man. Hey, listen, guys. I had a fucking tremendous time. Thank you so much for your time. Um, again, sorry for uh, being a little foggy and lightheaded. Uh, I'll get used. I'll get better. Trust me. You're um, you're all good. You're all good, Phil. Thank you so much for having us on. Yeah, we really appreciate no it. No all right, guys. So again, this is the Rooster on Podcast. I'll catch you guys next time.